0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It is simply not our Lord's way to announce outright when He's going to be teaching us doctrines. He just does it. This section of our gospel is a portion of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And in this section alone, we see our, our Lord lay out a doctrine of Scripture, a doctrine of the law, and a doctrine of righteousness. In the first place, he states, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's shorthand for the Scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Again, code for the scriptures here. Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We would simply call this position sola scriptura. Why on earth would there be any concern that Jesus might somehow have come to subvert the Scriptures. Why is it necessary for him to make this statement at all? Well, precisely because he has come to make all things new. A new creation, as we just sang, he a new Adam, but also he a new prophet, a new Moses, who will lead a new and more profound exodus. Likewise, a new kingdom with a new king. And that manifests in the phenomenon evident even to us today of the global Christian church, the kingdom of Christ spread throughout the world. He has indeed come to make all things new. He himself, the new and ultimate prophet, the new and ultimate priest, the new and ultimate king. But one thing remains the same, and that is the Scriptures. He has not come to abolish them in any sense, but to fulfill them in every way. What is true, then, of the Scriptures is also true of the commandments, the commandments being a part of the Scriptures. Thus our Lord says next, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. One aside we should note, he mentions the least of these commandments. There are greater commandments and lesser commandments. Even common sense tells us this in the estate of the state and the estate of the home. It is a lesser commandment to keep the speed limit than it is that commandment which prohibits treason. And this corresponds with greater and lesser sins. It is a lesser sin if one of my Children were to steal a cookie than it is if one of my children were to attempt to burn down the house. So there are greater and lesser commandments, greater and lesser sins, and our Lord says not even the least of these commandments is to be relaxed or to be set aside. Anyone who does such will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But, he says, Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do note, it's not merely teach them, not merely teach them so that they condemn you and you feel bad and then you're absolved and then you go do whatever you want again. Notice what our Lord says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And that is especially important for us to understand in this day of nihilism, which infects all of us, this idea that nothing you do really matters. It's all spitting into the wind. It's all losing down here. It's all inevitable that it fail. But here Christ holds forward this beautiful and blessed promise that as we do and teach God's holy law, we shall be called blessed. What is true of the scriptures is true of the law. Both endure. And Christ goes on to say, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Which at first seems like a large bill, something quite impossible. After all, aren't the scribes and the Pharisees the ones who are most scrupulous, most disciplined, most austere in their devotional practice? But consider the teaching of our Lord from a different angle. While the scribes and the Pharisees say that they worship Yahweh and believe that they're keeping the first commandment, Yahweh is standing right in front of them in human flesh and they reject him utterly. Even though they claim to keep the first commandment, they in no way do so. They have an altogether different God, as do all who reject Christ. So we ought to follow that tangent a little further and ask what it is to have a false God. Because one thing that may not be immediately obvious to us is that false gods don't announce themselves, hi, I'm a false god, avoid worshiping me. False gods are always wrapped up in deceit and delusion and the spirit of the age. You might recall, for example, that the very commandments that Moses received in our Old Testament lesson in Exodus 20, while he's up on the mountain, the people are down below constructing a golden calf. What do they call the golden calf? Yahweh. Idolatry is always done deceitfully and in a way that the people are put under delusion. You can think of the both and of Israel's history where the temptation was never to forsake Yahweh altogether but to worship both Yahweh and whatever the soup du jour, whatever the idol of the day happened to be. Consider, too, in the book of Daniel, how King Darius tempted Daniel. All you have to do is cease praying to your God for a mere 30 days. That's it. Two weeks to stop the spread. Or, a few chapters later, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... All you have to do is bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol. That's it. You can have Yahweh, you can have Christ. But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would rather have died than given over to such requests. We live in a day and age where so much of the church in America is bringing rainbow flags into the sanctuary. Unfortunately, it simply has to be said, one can't wave a rainbow flag and claim any longer to have the one true God. Nor can one subvert the law of God with the law of some lesser magistrate, some civil magistrate, like the law of Newsom or the law of whomever else it might be that happens to subvert that law of God. We must obey God and not man. We must not relax one of the least of the commandments of God, even if that means complete rebellion against even the smallest of the commandments of men. Least of all, can we abolish the law of God by turning the gospel into some sort of wrecking ball that destroys the two tablets of the law? That's simply how many church bodies who bear the name Lutheran have ceased to be Lutheran and ceased to be Christian. If we don't like it, it's law good thing the gospel destroys the law. Now we can do whatever we want. Therefore, our Lord says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees consists precisely in the form, but not the substance, in pretending to worship Yahweh while rejecting Yahweh in human flesh right before them so too with all the commandments. They interpret them externally. Well, as long as I haven't murdered someone, I've kept the fifth commandment. Never mind that I beat that person within an inch of their life. Never mind that I hate them with a passionate and burning hatred. I've kept the fifth commandment. No, you haven't, our Lord says. the fifth commandment, and Jesus isn't doing anything new here. He's interpreting the fifth commandment the way God intends. It's the Pharisees who have hollowed it out. To this effect, then, Jesus gives a concrete example followed by an analogy or a kind of mini-parable. The concrete example is if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now, the context here spells out that he has something against you. That is to say, you have actually sinned against him. So if you are at the altar offering your gift and there you remember that your brother has something against you, that is to say, you've sinned against your brother, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In so doing, you're going to have a righteousness beyond that which the Pharisees themselves have. And in so doing, you are going to fall under those words of Jesus. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the analogy or the parable that Jesus teaches comes next. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. That is to say, if you know you are guilty, you know your accuser is going to take you to court, isn't it better to get reconciled? before you're handed over to the judge and the judge hands you over to the guard and the guard puts you into prison and then you're in prison until the last penny is paid. Of course it is. And so if we would do that in everyday kind of life circumstances, how much more should we do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Be reconciled before they take complaint against us to the one true judge and he casts us into hell until we pay the last penny, which, of course, we cannot pay because every sin is an eternal sin and an eternal violation against the law and simply cannot be undone, except, that is, if God himself does that. And that is what Christ has done When the Son of God took on our flesh that he might bear our sin and be our Savior, he provided the only possible means of atonement, that through the blood of true man and true God all sins would be put away. The law cannot be appeased in any other way. Any amount of good works simply brings you back to what you were obligated to do in the first place, which is keep the law. There's no credits in this system. You owe to keep the law perfectly. You can never supersede that. And so we simply cannot save ourselves. But, and the law shuts every mouth, to be sure. What then is the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. In terms of our Lord's own sermon, it would simply be to have faith in Him. If you have Christ, then you have righteousness. If your trust is in yourself, if your trust is in your keeping of the law, you have no hope. If your trust is in standing before God one day and saying, here's my resume. I was the president of the congregation. I have a few hundred hours of volunteer service racked up. I'm a good person or at least better than the pagans around me. Let me in. The answer is, my friend, you lack the one righteousness you need. And that is the righteousness given to you freely in Christ and Christ alone. Thus, Christ teaches that the scriptures, the word of God, endure. The law as part of that word cannot be broken, and any who would loosen it or try to cheat it do nothing but cheat themselves. And as that law is set before us, we find that at the very heart of that law is our Savior Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law in our stead. Indeed, what is the law but to love God and love neighbor? And Christ manifests this in the greatest of all ways, when though God had forsaken him, he cried out in faith and perfect love, My God, my God. And when man and neighbor had turned their back on Christ and were putting him to death, in perfect love for neighbor, he said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. The very gospel itself is Christ fulfilling the law and giving that benefit unto us. And that righteousness that Christ gives is a righteousness that penetrates us from head to foot, from skin to soul. It is a righteousness that, as it works, creates a new heart within. That's why St. Paul says, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it's why just a few moments ago we sang these beautiful words. We thank you, Christ. New life is ours. New light, new hope, new strength, new powers. This grace our every way attend until we reach our journey's end. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.